Good morning. morning. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, where we will continue our study, finishing the third chapter of the book. Uh, But first, I have a question for you. Maybe we could get the first slide up. See if anybody can tell me what this is. Remember, you have to yell because my hearing is not so good. I'm sorry? Inauguration, very good. Um, What is an inauguration? Can anybody give me the definition? Oh, the meaning, purpose. Someone other than Howard. He already answered one question, you know. Yeah, really coming into office. I uh, have a few claims to fame in my life, but uh, one of them is I was uh, the master alchemist in uh, the fraternity I went to. That's the chemistry fraternity in Berkeley. Uh, It may not be as bad as it sounds. It was uh, what I call a professional fraternity, not a Greek fraternity. So some of the bad images that might come to mind are not quite part of it. Uh, But yeah, as the uh, master alchemist, I was uh, voted into office, but a day had to come when I would assume the office of being master alchemist in my fraternity. It just meant that I was kind of the president. It didn't bestow me any powers to change lead into gold or any of the other ideas that come with alchemy. But yes, that's effectively what we're looking at there. President Trump was elected president, but then a day had to come when he assumed office as the president, and that is known as the Inauguration Day. In the United States, I believe it's January 21 or 20th. Yeah. So another one's coming in another year and a half or so. We'll see who it is that time. But uh, what we, of course, what we want to think about when we gather here uh, is not me as a master alchemist. It's not President Trump as the President of the United States, but it is about Jesus assuming his office. We've been studying the person of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And in fact, up to this point, there was relatively little about Jesus. We saw his birth in chapter 1. We saw the the wise man in chapter 2 and Herod's attempt to get rid of Jesus. And then we saw John the Baptist at the first half of chapter 3. It's really today that we will actually see Jesus in action for the first time in the book of Matthew, and as makes sense, we will see him assume his office as Israel's Messiah. Okay, with that introduction, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's our passage for this morning. First, we want to think about the need for an inauguration. Why do we even need to have an inauguration? Well, if we go back uh, to, uh, to Trump's inauguration, he was uh, technically uh, the president of the United States. He was already elected. There's a process of election in the United States. Some of you might know it better than me. And he won the most 
vote or votes or representatives or whatever it is that you win in a republic. And, uh, and as a result, we knew he was our next president, but he had not yet assumed power. He had no rights to uh, tell anybody what to do as president-elect. He had to wait until he was inaugurated, until he actually assumed the office of, as the president, and then he could declare wars on other countries if he wanted to. He could impose tariffs on product sheep from other countries. It was his power to do so after he was inaugurated. The same thing about the Lord Jesus. We don't think about this often. Uh, Jesus uh, was the Messiah when he was born. Technically, uh, the wise men came and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He was born king of the Jews, but he hasn't assumed the office as king or as Messiah as of yet. A good demonstration of that fact we could see in Luke chapter 2. Uh, it's really the one account we have in the scriptures of Jesus in action before he became the Messiah, he was uh, about 12 years old, the passage tells us. Uh, he probably just went into his equivalent, that's that day's equivalent of a bar mitzvah. If you know what a bar mitzvah is, it's kind of a Jewish coming of age to demonstrate you've passed from uh, youth into adulthood. You have now become responsible for keeping the laws of Moses. Before that, you were just a child but now you are recognized as a member of the religious community by virtue of, of going through your bar mitzvah. And uh, Jesus' parents, uh, having come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which is likely where Jesus was recognized as an adult for the first time, left to go back to Galilee. To their surprise, they found out a day out that Jesus wasn't with them. And so they hurried back to Jerusalem, and it says, uh, our passage will start in verse 6, Luke 2, sorry, verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days' day, Jesus' parents found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Notice Jesus is not telling the religious authorities what to do or what to believe or even teaches them directly the truth of God. He just says he was listening to them and asking questions because it wasn't his place to teach directly or with authority at that time. He was just a 12-year-old boy, yes, a new member of the religious community, but not having any authority over others in that structure. They really were the one of authority. They were the teachers at the temple. Now, I believe Jesus was leading them on with questions. <laughs> I think he was asking the kind of questions that would provoke their understanding of who God is, right? And their standing before God. But he had to do it in the form of questions. He couldn't actually teach them with authority, as he does later on, we will see in Matthew. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Clearly, he was. The Christ. Clearly, he had knowledge that was supernatural. Right? People wondered at him, yet he did not assume that authority in his teaching. So when they, that is his parents, saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then, note, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And was subject to them. He respected his parents' authority. His parents said, you know what? Get out of the temple. We're going to Nazareth. Jesus obeyed them, absolutely. Right? He was the son, and so he owed them respect right? and obedience, even though he was the Messiah and the Son of God, until he assumed that office. We won't go there, but 
You could look at uh, John chapter 2, for example, where it's just days after Jesus assumes office, and his mother says, hey, you know, this wedding, they're having a problem, they ran out of wine. And he says to, the, to her something like, you know, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Right? I'm here as the Messiah, right? not as your son. Right? Now, he was still his son, her son. He still made sure she was taken care of, even from the cross. But now she no longer had a position of authority over him. And we will see later in Matthew, he gets challenged by the religious leaders. And he, he makes it clear he is not under their authority anymore. Right? His authority comes directly from God. When did this transaction happen? When did this change happen? Where Jesus assumed this authority, it happens this day. Really, this moment we're looking at when Jesus is being baptized. Right? It's when he assumes this office. Okay, so that is the need for inauguration. Second is the choice of location for his inauguration. It says Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So we saw a close-up of uh, uh, President Trump's inauguration. Now we can go to like the bird's eye view. Uh, where was uh, Trump inaugurated? It's actually not the White House. It does look a little bit similar, so you get points, you know, partial credit. <laughs> yeah, it's a capital, a capital building, I believe is what it's called. I think that's kind of the seat of the government, right? And it kind of makes sense um, that that would be where Trump would be inaugurated, right? That's the seat of power. Had Jesus followed the pattern that, and I'm not saying this to blame President Trump, uh, all presidents have been inaugurated in that spot since Ronald Reagan. He, he kind of picked that spot. I think Ronald Reagan was the first president with the eye for TV. You know, he really, uh, uh, part of his rise to power was really mastering the television, the technology of television, and realizing the power you can have projecting yourself through the little screen that they had in those days into people's houses. And I think he was able to look at, you know, the scene and realizing, you know what, you know, the previous place wasn't quite as scenic, wasn't going to get the same power, the same effect, and he chose that spot. And every president followed in his step, realizing, ah, that's the spot. I want to be inaugurated, right? Because it projects power. And um, had Jesus wanted to have the same effect in his inauguration, which he could have, right? Uh, he would have probably picked the steps on the temple of the temple in Jerusalem, right? That would have been the center of Jewish power in those days. Or he could have gone up and say, you know what, forget that, I'm going directly to Rome, uh, the palace of the president, knock him off his throne, and there I want to be inaugurated, right? That's where I want to assume power as Messiah and as the ruler of the world, right? He could have, if he so chose. But what did Jesus choose? Instead, can we get the, actually, you can do it. Next picture gives you another view of the event, just to show that the, the massive event that the inauguration really is. Um, but the next one will show you Jesus' choice for inauguration. This is a picture we took from last time. Uh, there isn't a particular person that represents Jesus, but it represents the general scene. This is the baptism of John, right? It was uh, out in the wilderness. Uh, it was uh, in the Jordan River. People came because John was preaching repentance, and people sensed that what John was teaching was right. Uh, they needed to repent of their sins, and they did it by being baptized. That's what John told them to do. So they went into the water. John would baptize them, immerse them in the water, and they would come out and confess their sins, or maybe they confessed before they were baptized. I'm not quite 100% sure about that. I get the sense that confession happened after the baptism itself. And then they went back out. And it was there that Jesus chose to enter into office. He went 
to John to be baptized by him. And from my, again, reading of the passage, uh, John did not know that it was Jesus coming to him to be baptized until he literally stood right in front of him. So you can almost imagine Jesus getting in the back of a line, maybe a long line, uh, to be baptized, and then person after person comes before John the Baptist, and all of a sudden, it's Jesus standing before John the Baptist. And it says that John tried to prevent him. It doesn't explain in this passage how John recognized that it was Jesus. We'll see later. John didn't have an official sign to recognize that this was Jesus until the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and, uh, and comes upon Jesus. That was the sign that God gave John the Baptist himself of recognizing who was the Messiah. And yet, John was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, from birth, actually from before birth, from his mother's womb. And we see in the Gospel of Luke that he was able to recognize Jesus in vitro if I understand correctly what that means. You know, he was still in the womb, and Jesus was in the womb, and John still recognized Jesus, right? That's the kind of connection that John had, or the influence that the Holy Spirit had upon John the Baptist, that he could recognize Jesus without any sign, just because it was Jesus, it was the Messiah. But he couldn't declare him to be the Messiah until later. Anyways, John somehow recognizes that it is Jesus, and he says, wait a second, you don't need this baptism. This is a baptism of repentance, and you have no sins to repent of. Right? So he tried to prevent him. But Jesus insists, and he says, uh, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Question for you. How was Jesus' baptism fulfilling all righteousness? Let me answer. Because that was a big question for me in the passage. Okay, explain. How does it, how does it fulfill all righteousness? First, I would say, uh, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness really is the character of God. Righteousness is the character of God. God is loving. God is kind. God is merciful. God is true. Right? All these things really reflect God's character, and they define what it is righteousness for us. We were made in God's image, and all of these attributes of God was really what God wanted to display in our own life. So that really is what righteousness is. How does Jesus fulfill then the righteousness of God? Well, he demonstrates the character of God through this baptism. The first character of God that I see displayed in this baptism is that of humility, right? Jesus doesn't spare himself going through these actions that uh, I would say most of us would be humble to do, to go, to go stand in line, go into the wilderness and go stand in line and uh, go and be baptized with a baptism to, to the outside world would appear as a baptism of repentance, even though clearly he had no sins to repent of. It was an act of humility. Uh, let me connect that with a story uh, that Jesus himself told in the Gospel of Luke uh, to describe how this is really a description of God's character. This is the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. I'd like to read uh, more or less the whole thing and comment on it, even though I won't get into great depth because that would be a sermon on its own. But this is the Lord, Jesus, describing really God's attitude towards sinners. The whole context here 
is Jesus is being approached by the religious leaders who are challenging Jesus for associating with sinners, right? And Jesus is trying to help them and us understand God's attitude toward uh, sinners and the fact that he loves them. So verse 11, Luke 15, he says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So this is a nice son. He couldn't wait for his father to die. And so he said, I want the stuff now. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So prodigal living is, is a wasteful living. What it means, he uses money to buy the, whatever it is that pleased him and made him <coughs> feel good. It could have been uh, spending it on parties uh, for himself and for his friends. Uh, he could have used it to uh, uh, satisfy uh, his interest in, in um, rare foods. Or, or perhaps on satisfying physical appetites. Uh, he did not use his money wisely, and uh, so it was considered wasteful, wasteful living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. His situation changed from having a lot of money and being able to satisfy his pleasures he went into a condition where he couldn't provide for his most basic needs. He couldn't even feed himself. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he, that citizen, sent him into his fields to feed swine. So now he had a job of taking care of pigs, which for Jews would be an unclean animal, uh, and probably an unclean job uh, to anybody. Um, and that was his condition. Uh, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So now this, this uh, boy that uh, left his father and wasted his money is at uh, the brink of starvation. Uh, probably doesn't smell so good either. Really a picture of us in our sins. I think that's what the Lord Jesus is trying to portray. But when he came to himself, finally this, this uh, young, young man wakes up to the error of his ways and said, how many of my father's hired servants have enough bread, have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's like, okay, I messed up big time, uh, but I can think of a way of fixing the situation. I can go back to my dad and ask him to just take me as a servant. I realize I lost any claim of being a son, but uh, perhaps my father will have enough compassion on me to make me a servant. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Stop. This is really the point of the story that I want to connect to what Jesus was doing in his baptism. Uh, you could say the father could have seen his son coming back and knowing <coughs> his son really uh, disrespect toward him and toward God, uh, have felt a certain reserve and saying, you know, you know I'm going to wait for this son to come and make sure that he apologizes properly. And I'll consider some period of uh, testing. Uh, maybe after he proves himself for a month, uh, I'll let him back into 
you know, my affection and the privileges of a son. But that's not what it says. It says the father, seeing him a long way off, uh, had compassion and ran toward him. Right? And uh, to me, that's what we're seeing Jesus doing in this baptism. Here are uh, sinners, right? You have people that, like this prodigal son, have corrected their thinking. And you know what? Our life of sin and dissipation was wrong. And we need to repent of our sins and come back to God. And you could say, in God could put himself in this position like, okay, seems like they're finally making a right move here, but I need some proof of their intention. Let's see if they can walk for 30 days uh, in a manner consistent with their profession. Let's see them making some progress, and then we'll talk. And then I will consider bestowing my blessings upon them. But no, we see God running all the way to meet the sinners at really the point of turning. Right Here they are entering the water of baptism and saying, I am ready to confess my sins. I am ready to recognize that the life I lived was wrong. And there is Jesus coming down to meet them at that same point. He had no sins, but he would come as close as he could to connect with those who were reaching out to God. You're coming to be baptized, confessing your sin. I'm coming to be baptized to receive you. Right? Uh, same as the father running to the son. So we see here God running toward us, being ready to meet us as soon as we come to our senses and are willing to turn from our sins. There Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness because he was demonstrating God's character. That's what God was willing to do to come and meet us in our state and being willing to turn back to God. He wasn't going to keep us waiting a fraction of a second after that. So that's one way in which the baptism, Jesus' baptism, fulfills the righteousness of God. There's at least one more that I could think of, and you might be able to think of others, and I'm ready to, to hear uh, additional answers to that question. How is Jesus' baptism fulfilling the righteousness of God? But the, the one other thing I can think of is it gives a faithful representation of Jesus' ministry. Um, the Jews expected a Messiah that would indeed come to Jerusalem and declare himself as the Messiah and proceeds by driving out the Romans, giving the Jews uh, uh, political liberty from the Roman Empire and uh, prosperity and banishing uh, disease and affliction. And really, the, what we're looking forward to in Jesus' second coming uh, and reign on the earth is what the Jews expected Jesus would accomplish in his first coming. And uh, had Jesus come to Jerusalem and there declared to be the Messiah, he would, in a sense, be supporting that expectation. Right? That's exactly what they expected him to do. By Jesus coming and being baptized in the water that other sinners, <laughs> other sinners, that sinners were coming to, to repent, he was projecting the fact he was going to be a different kind of Messiah to the one people were expecting him to be. He was going to be a humble Messiah. He was going to be a suffering Messiah. He was going to be a savior of sinners, right? To bring sinners back to God. Not a political deliverer or one who was to solve our earthly problems. Now we recognize in the long run it is Jesus' intention to rule over the world and to bring political uh, liberty and to deliver us from all kinds of afflictions that he experienced in the world. But first and foremost, Jesus came to be a savior of sinners. And uh, he portrayed that faithfully in his uh, coming to be baptized. So at least two ways in which we recognize that Jesus' baptism, even though he was not a sinner, was done to fulfill all righteousness, to demonstrate really God's character and God's plan 
of salvation. Okay. Uh, next we see uh, Jesus... Um, it says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Let me show you another picture. I like to test people's knowledge just because I feel like I'm on the spot too much. I have to put you guys on the spot some. Uh, can anybody tell me what this is? Someone other than Howard, because, you know, he answered the last one. It's like President Johnson taking his oath. Very good. Yeah. Any idea where he was taking his oath of office? In an airplane. It was an airplane. Why was he on an airplane? Let me ask you this question. Why was President L.B. Johnson taking an oath of office? Yes? Right, yeah, President Kennedy was just assassinated. Uh, I didn't do enough research to answer the question. It's possible he was scrambled to the air because they didn't know why President, Lincoln, uh, sorry, President Kennedy was assassinated, and maybe his life could be next, right? I'm not sure exactly. Or he may have been just traveling in the air at the time. Uh, but in order to become president, he had to be sworn into office. All that uh, ceremony we saw around uh, President Trump during his inauguration is not actually required, right? The only thing the Constitution requires that happens in order for a president to assume office is that he take an oath. And the oath is very short. It's like two lines, right? Basically, I swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. It's something that simple, right? You do that, and you're the president. Now, you have to be elected, or in his case, you have to be the vice president when the president uh, you know, is no longer president, whether they uh, die or whether they resign. Right? You have to take the oath. Uh, what's the point of that? There's technically only, was only one thing that needed to happen for Jesus to assume his office. And that is uh, what we just read. We can maybe show a picture. Of course, it's an artist's rendition of the event. He had to receive the Holy Spirit. This is what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1. And John bore witness, this is John the Baptist, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, that is, I didn't know Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is God, said to me, upon whom you John the Baptist, see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, Jesus. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist was there to prepare the way. He told people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he told them about the one that was coming after him. Someone is coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. That's the Messiah. Right? John was the one who needed to point to Jesus and say, this is the one I've been preaching about. And John technically could not do so until he saw the Spirit descending and remaining on the Lord Jesus. Right? So this is really the one thing that had to happen for Jesus to assume his office, or for John to be able to say, this is the one I've been told about. Um, a couple of other notes about that. Uh, first of all, it's a, it was a prophetic fulfillment, so the Jews had reason to expect that this would happen. And by the way, uh, there's no reason to think that this event 
was limited to viewers, uh, it's likely that everyone that was there saw it happen, right? So Jesus saw it, John the Baptist saw it, we know those two for a fact. Likely everybody that was paying attention, right, at the river, maybe in the line behind, standing in line behind Jesus, or maybe on the bank, if they were interested in the people being baptized, would have seen this happen. Um, but the Jews had reason to expect it. It was prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of his roots. Who is that talking about? The Lord Jesus, right? Because he is a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And so the Jews understood if you're talking about a branch coming from the root of Jesse, it's talking about the Messiah, because the Messiah was going to be the descendant of King David. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So the Jews should have known that the Messiah would be one filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? That was one of the prophecies concerning him. Another thing to note here, and we might observe it as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit wasn't just a sign. He was actually an enabler for the Lord Jesus in his ministry. And uh, that can be an encouragement to us. Why? Because we are also given the Holy Spirit and are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is the power which we need to live the Christian life. So Jesus was actually living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he was God the Son, but as a man, he depended on the Holy Spirit for his leading. We will see it in the next verse, really, in the first verse of chapter 4, and on his power, his miracles. Everything he did was by the power, leading and power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have, whom we can follow and we can live by his power. Food for thought. <laughs> uh, second here is that uh, this, interestingly, is not just a significant event from a Jewish expectation of the Messiah, but it kind of connects to, if you would, the culture of the time, right? The non-Jewish culture of the time. So we've already, I already asked the question, what does inauguration meant? and how it answers. It really means a coming into office. Uh, here's a question I don't think you will know, but I'm going to give a chance, just in case anybody knows. Uh, where does the word come from? What is the root of the word inauguration? Any students of Latin and Roman culture here? <laughs> I would not have known this if it wasn't for doing research and preparation for the sermon, so don't feel like I know any more than you guys do. But uh, it really comes from the Roman word, the Latin word, augur, inauguration, right? It's done uh, in or following the principle of an augur. An augur, I have a picture of that, was a Roman priest. And uh, the Roman priests, or maybe one class of them, there may have been more than one class, but these particular augurs were the ones who were supposed to be able to look at birds and by the type of birds, the number of birds, whatever it is that the bird was doing, they were supposed to see signs or omens or evidence of God's will or the will of the gods, right? Obviously, they did not know the true God. Uh, but the word inauguration meant that when a person was appointed to office, it was with the approval of these augurs, augurs, or, or Roman priests. The Roman priest was supposed to say, yes, this person is the one selected by God for this office. And we know it because we're looking at the birds. 
right? You begin to see the connection? What did John see when he declared that this is the Messiah? He saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And not just him, but everybody looking around. What kind of a bird was it? It was God, the Holy Spirit kind of a bird. <laughs> right? The kind of bird you really ought to pay attention to. Of course, the only time we have recorded in the scripture God appearing as a bird, right? What was that bird doing? What was the direction of its flight? It was going directly toward Jesus. What did it do when it reached Jesus? It remained upon him and did not live. Right? This is a true inauguration. <laughs> right? A true sign that this is the person elected by God for this ministry. In fact, it says somewhere that Jesus was anointed by God in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Right? Anointment was what they did in those days to recognize somebody had a particular office, they would anoint them. And Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Right? He was shown. And in fact, the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. Right? The one that God assigned an office to. And so here we see Jesus being assigned the office of being our Savior. Being the Messiah. Okay. Final verse. For today, it says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Father already showed that Jesus is the appointed Messiah by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what is he doing here? Well, I mean, he's, he's doing, he's, he's speaking the truth about the Lord Jesus, right? It's, it's, you could look at it as just one more evidence of who... Jesus is, but I think there's here a particular response to what the Lord Jesus was doing. There's a principle in the scripture. It's uh, quoted uh, by James or, or written in the, in the book of James. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus was humbling himself in this action. Right? It wasn't hard for Jesus what he did, but it was still an act of humility to go down into the water of baptism as sinners were being baptized in there. And God wanted to lift him up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God was pleased by the action of humility. He, God is, God is delights in it. We think of humility as being something bad. God thinks of humility as being something good. And he wants to reward it. It says this about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. In this world, we respect those who exalt themselves those who show themselves to be better than others. In God's economy, he exalts those who humble themselves and put others ahead of themselves, just like Jesus did. Okay, application. Um, I like to always have two applications. One would be, uh, for anyone who hasn't yet received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, what can you learn or apply from this passage? Do you understand 
who Jesus is. This passage clearly shows that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen by God to be your savior. Do you understand what Jesus came to do? He shows it in his descent into the water of baptism. He came to receive sinners. All those who would come to God in repentance would find that he is there with open arms, ready to receive them. Second, if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we can look at this as an example. The Lord Jesus was humble, and he wants us to be humble. One more passage from James that uh, might help us a little bit as we think about this last thought of the message, James chapter 3 and verse 13, James asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise? We all want to be wise, right? We all want to be A students in uh, God's school. Well, James tells us how we can be A students in God's school, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Here is another word, meekness, uh, could go along with humility, not asserting yourself as uh, being more important than others. And James, uh, in contrast, will point out to the wisdom of this world or the way of this world. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Uh, this world will teach you to be self-seeking. I have a uh, cousin Actually, he's my nephew. No, he's my cousin. Sorry about that. I have to think about it a little bit. Um, and uh, he recently got a tattoo on his arm. And uh, he explained uh, the tattoo. It has uh, three Hebrew words. And I think it was something like love. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I think the second one was maybe kindness. And then, no, actually, no. I'm getting them wrong. Okay, I can tell you the third one. It has three words. The third one was self-love, self-love. And um, I or somebody else in our group asked him why he put this tattoo on his arm because, generally speaking, putting tattoos is not a good idea because, you know, you like something one day, you may not like it the next, but the tattoo is still going to be there. So personally, I recommend against tattoos. Um, but uh, he explained why he got it. He said that uh, his parents were divorcing a few years before that time. And he, he went to his parents and said, can you give me some words of wisdom to live by? I'm not sure why he would choose to do that at that particular time when his parents were divorcing. But uh, they gave him these words that he used, and one of them was self-love. Self-love. This is a word to live by. Well, that's what the world teaches, right? Uh, if you want to be happy, you have to love yourself. You have to love yourself. And um, I can see that there's a certain truth in that. You have to appreciate that you have a value. I think it's dangerous to think you have no value, but my value comes from the fact God loves me. God loves me. That's where my sense of value comes from, not by how much I love myself. Hitler loved himself, right? That wasn't a good thing. Um, but that is the wisdom of this world. 
is characterized by envy, self-seeking, boasting, right? But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This, I would challenge you to consider, is the kind of wisdom that Jesus showed as he descended to the waters of baptism. He didn't need to be baptized for himself. He had no sins to repent of. But through this act of baptism, he was helping people come to know the kind of savior that he was. He was going as close as he could to sinners willing to repent of their sins, to assure them of their certain reception by God. And uh, you and I have a choice to live a life that is marked by humility, meaning putting others ahead of ourselves, and by that we can express the same wisdom that Christ manifested in his baptism. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for sending a Savior to uh, redeem us from our sins and was ready to receive us at the moment of repentance. Lord, as soon as we put our faith in him, we pray for anyone here who has not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus as his personal, his or her personal savior, and we ask that you help them take that step of faith. And uh, we pray for the rest of us, Lord, as we recognize that um, this kind of wisdom doesn't come naturally to us. We struggle uh, against a selfishness and uh, jealousy, uh, really the uh, demonic, sensual wisdom of this world, but we ought instead to manifest your wisdom in our lives. We ask that you help us do so, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.